My name is Gianni Russo, a.k.a. Carlo, the infamous son-in-law from The Godfather. I'm now known as the Hollywood Godfather, and this is my story. Before all of the wins in my portfolio, I was a little boy diagnosed with polio. Experimenting with cures, I tried every one. Felt everything in my right, but my left was numb. Walking with a limp, like will I ever run? Once again, or is this it? Am I forever done? Living in the hospital was never fun. Some people were cool, but not everyone. On January 15th, 1947, the city of Los Angeles was sent into a panic after the body of 22-year-old Medford Mass native Elizabeth Short was found surgically bisected at the waist, drained of blood, and bizarrely mutilated on a vacant lot. This infamous murder inspired the largest manhunt in LAPD history and captured national headlines. But police investigators failed to capture the identity of the person responsible for her murder, for whom the media called the Black Dahlia. Our guest this week is retired LAPD homicide detective Steve Holdell, who has worked, more, who has worked on more than 300 murder cases and has achieved one of the highest solve rates on the force during his 25 years as an LAPD detective. After he retired, he launched his own investigation into the Black Dahlia murder, which led him to a shockingly unexpected perpetrator, his own father, Dr. George Hodel. is also author, author of the Black Dahlia Avenger, as well as many other books on this fascinating murder. Retired LAPD detective Steve Hodel joins us. Steve, first of all, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Great to be with you, Mike. Um, Steve, so that's an amazing intro. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. I am a crime uh, junkie, and uh -huh. I have been for so, so long. I grew up watching Gianni on the Rockford Files. So <laughs> telling my age, but that, that I... That was fictitious crime, fortunately. Well, I I'll think you're the youngest one here, Jeannie. Well... <laughs> So, Steve, for everybody, people that know, don't know your background, give a little brief description of your background real quick. Born in Los Angeles, uh, joined the Navy at 17 for four years, got out. And back then, we're, we're talking about in the early 60s. And, uh, you know, uh, a young uh, white male, what do they do? They become a cop. So I joined LAPD in 63, um, went through the academy, uh, basically did five years in patrol, uniform patrol. And then I graduated to detectives, worked all the tables, sex crimes, juvenile, burglary, robbery, and then eventually, uh, you know, moved over to homicide. Now, you did the Manson murders. Did you do the Manson murders? No, no. They, oh. they were on our watch. But downtown L.A., I was assigned to Hollywood Division. I think on the East Coast, you call them precincts. Okay. But but I was assigned to one of the 18 divisions, Hollywood homicide. And basically, I stayed at Hollywood for 17 years, had over 300 murder investigations, did have one of the highest solve rates in the city. But it wasn't just me. It was it was kind of a spirit of core. We had a great bunch of guys there, three or four of us. And then uh, basically retired in 86 and moved north to Bellingham, Washington. And uh, took my kids. I had a boys were about what six and eight, something like that. Moved up there and uh, basically was enjoy. I got a PI license. Was doing defense work, 
you know, went to the dark side, as as, as Connolly would say, and uh, worked primarily crime uh, defense uh, for, for uh, criminal cases. And um, basically, uh, my dad, and, you know, to understand the story, we have to kind of go into heavy biographics on my father, but to really understand it. But basically, he moved back from Asia in 1990 to San Francisco, and I hooked and I was close to my father as he wasn't a warm fuzzy, but I was as close as you could be. And I'd go down to see him in San Francisco. He'd come up to Bellingham. So he was a surgeon. What kind of a doctor was he? He was a, well, he was a medical doctor and then he had an MD, but he did in his early days, he was a surgeon. He uh, was at a log, worked at a logging camp, did surgeon, soul surgeon there. And uh, then got into kind of VD was his specialty and uh, became the uh, head of L.A. County Health Department. Uh, did you say, what did you say you just specialized in? Venereal disease control. I thought maybe I missed, I th okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just yeah, wanted so to he, sure well, You know why we've he, never experienced that. That's why we- That's <laughs> right. Never heard of us, so. Well, I, you know, know. I just want to clarify. Yeah, well, we're talking about, now we're talking about the 1940s. He was there, so from- you know, he actually from the 1920s forward, he was in L.A., Hollywood. He got his doctors. He got his M.D. in, in 36. George George Hill Hodel was born in Los Angeles, too, uh, downtown, uh, basically Fifth and Main near there, uh, right near the Biltmore. Um, he was an only child. He His parents, uh, he lived in Pasadena, South Pasadena. Um he was uh, highly gifted. His IQ was a uh, hundred and eighty-six, one point above Einstein. Incidentally, wow. that skips a generation. So my <laughs> my boys are in good shape. Uh, uh, basically, uh, high IQ uh, blew all of his fellow students out of the water in everything. Um, basically, uh, was a piano prodigy. Played piano concerts at the Shrine Auditorium at the age of nine. Um, was taken in Madame Montessori school. His mother took him over to Europe. He went to Madame Montessori's for a year, came back, and basically went through South Pasadena High School, entered Caltech at the age of 15. Um, not only was he a musical prodigy and highly intelligent, he was also very sexually precocious or advanced for his age, let's say. And he had an affair with a professor's wife at Caltech, and she got pregnant. And I well, like this guy already. We haven't even got into his life yet. Yeah, I'm trying to see why he was uh, specialized in VD. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he, he really was obsessed with sex and basically uh, got into, uh, he, she broke up her marriage. She goes back east to right in the Boston area. He goes back, says, I love you. I want to marry you. She, the woman looks at him and says, George, you're a child yourself. Get out of my life. Wow. He comes back and uh, basically is kicked out of Caltech for the scandal. He gets a fake ID and he passes himself off at 21. as He's 17 now. And he gets a job as a cabbie. And he's driving out of the Biltmore downtown. Strangely enough, one of his fellow cab, cab drivers is a young guy going to law school by the name of William H. Parker. 
who who will become our most famous police chief, William yeah. Parker, uh, later on. Anyway, George gets a job as a young cub reporter uh, for an L the L.A. Record, which was a prominent newspaper. And he starts writing these tabloid crime reports. He's riding around with LAPD uh, vice. They're kicking doors and they're arresting the judge with a young blonde and uh, writing these tabloid stories. Then he graduates and starts writing around with LAPD homicide and writes, the, again, tabloid stories about the bloody ace of spade next to the body, that sort of thing. And um, so basically he's, he's buddies with it. And uh, Gianni, you may know, I don't know if you ever had any contact with John Houston, the famous film director. Of course I did. Did I, you? His, okay. his daughter, Angelica, all of them. Shit. Yeah. No, no. Well, I love John Houston. Um, he, yeah, he's, he was one of the greatest. Yeah. Gianni wasn't wasn't uh, he the one that picked up uh, the tailor? What was his name? We did a podcast about him just recently, and he was oh yeah, he, he, yeah, AJ Pratt. AJ Pratt, do you know oh, that? Yeah, he hired AJ Pratt as the wardrobe. He picked guy. him up at the side of the road. Yep, really. Wow. Anyway, so John is now at the, back then in the in the twenties. John is a close friends with Dad. George and John are buddies, and they're double dating. And at that time, John was just the son of a famous actor, Walter Houston, his father, right. who was doing stage and screen. And uh, so dad, so George and John are double dating. And George is dating a woman by the name of Dorothy. And John is dating a woman by the name of Emilia. A couple of weeks go by and John falls in love with Dorothy. So they switch. John and Dorothy run off to uh, Greenwich Village over on your guys' side of town and wow. basically um, get married. And uh, they're married for seven years. Their marriage breaks up. Dorothy comes back, hooks back up with George, who's um, now, uh, who who basically, well, in before they hook back up, Emily and George have an affair and she gets pregnant and they go north and he enters pre-med at Berkeley. Then he goes across to UCSF and gets his medical degree at San Francisco. And they have a child, they have two children. They have a child in 20, 1928, and then they have a, a Duncan, and then they have a Tamar comes along in 35, a girl. So anyway, he leaves her, he goes and starts doing surgery at a logging camp in uh, New Mexico. And uh, anyway, eventually, I won't go through all the details, but he comes back to LA. Dorothy breaks up with John. They hook back up and my older brother Mike is born in 39 I come along in 41 and my younger brother Kelly's 42 dad's joined LA County Health he quickly rises to the top becomes head of LA County Health specializing in venereal disease and uh he buys a famous now you guys may be familiar with the Souden house which is a kind of a Mayan looking yeah temple in very, eccentric, very eccentric looking house yeah, it was built by Frank Lloyd Wright Jr., Lloyd Wright. Anyway, it's this Mayan temple in the heart of Hollywood. It looks like a set. Is that, and, is, it looks like the one from the um, House on Haunted Hill, the Vincent Price movie. Looks sort of like that. Go ahead. Sorry. I don't know. I, I don't No, I think that was another one. That was in San Francisco. Uh, anyway, we all moved. The, so we're the three little princes. Mom's the queen and dad's the king. And we all move into this house in Hollywood. 
everything's going fine until 1949 and there's a knock on the door and it's LAPD and the Dr. Odell, yes, you're under arrest for incest. So they arrest, yeah. Remember Tamar was born? Well, she's 14. She came down that summer of 49. And uh, basically, uh, he had a sex party with her and about four other adults. They all kind of, it was a kind of a, you know, swapping, swapping. And uh, anyway, he gets arrested. And uh, there's a big trial and a scandal. And uh, he gets Jerry Geisler, who was kind of the Johnny Cochran of that day. Yeah, he worked with a lot of the studios back then. They used to say, get guys, get geezer. Guy, what is his name? Get, name? get me, get me, Jerry, get me geezer. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He all the, he represented all the stars. Marilyn Monroe, you know, Robert Mitchum, all of them. Johnny Stompanato there. What's her name? The actress. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean. Laura, uh, what's the name? A daughter killed Johnny, in fact. Yes, yes. The one that killed the dog killed Johnny Stompanato there. Yeah, right. yeah, didn't they develop a new dance? The the Stompanato Stomp. That's where the girls cut in. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> Lana Turner. Lana Turner. Lana Turner. There we go. Yep. Oh, Lana I mean, Turner, yes. Yeah. Break it up once in a while. Yeah. So dad dad has a trial. It's a three-week trial. And dad uh, basically Jerry Geisler paints. Tamar as a pathological liar, you know, even though they had three adults present during the sex acts. And uh, anyway, he beats the case. Later, we'll find out there was a payoff. So dad is a, in, we're now into 1950. Dad splits the country and goes to Asia, reinvents himself as a market researcher, marries a Philip, wealthy Filipina and uh, has four more kids. Uh, breaks up with that marriage after three or four years, hooks up with his secretary, a young uh, Japanese woman, June. Um, they get married, they come back to LA, move to San Francisco, fast forward 10 years. I see him for that last 10 years, we become close. He dies, okay? Um, so I go down and do all the things you have to do when a father passes and I'm talking to June, and she says, I think your fa father would want you to have this. She gives me a small album. I open the album, and it's got photographs of my mom and us boys, and then I'm going through it, and the, here's a semi-nude reclining woman with young woman with dark hair, and I said to June, who's this? She says, I don't know, somebody your father knew from a long time ago. And for this to this day, Gianni, I have no idea why Black Dahlia came to mind, but it kind of came into my mind and passed out, and that was it. Wow. It just left. Two or three days later, I'm on the phone to Tamar, who is now living in Hawaii, and I haven't talked to her in 50 years. You know, she went her way. She kind of spun out, became best friends with Michelle Phillips and the Mamas and Papas, and they did the whole San Francisco scene. And um, sex, drugs, rock and roll. And I kind of went <laughs> another direction. And, and um, anyway, we're talking about <laughs> this great man, his remarkable life. And I'm on the phone with her and she's out of nowhere. She says, well, you know, he was a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. And I'm saying, where in the F is this coming from, Tamar? What are you talking about? 
like I said, I've had maybe 20 minutes of conversations in 20, 50, 40 years with her. Anyway, she says, yeah, he didn't do it. But when they were taking me to trial in the on the incest, the officer said they believed he would, he killed the Black Dahlia. I said, no way. I'll be able to show he had nothing to do with this in 10 minutes. So I start getting into it. And I, di I didn't know a lot about the Black Dahlia murder. I knew it was a famous unsolved from the 40s, but I was in the 60s and moving forward. I didn't really much care about the 40s. And we'd seen the photos at the police academy going through, and that was it. I didn't even know her name, Elizabeth Short. So I started getting into it, and uh, uh, basically it all comes together. I, I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been doing it for 17 years as a homicide detective. The evidence all falls in place, and I go in secret to the head DA down there, a guy named Steve Kay, who was co-counsel with Bugliosi on the Manson case, uh, Mike. Yeah, he's still around. And he reviews it and he says, you know, based on your evidence and all of your findings, I would file two counts of murder. And the second shock was he was a serial murderer. There were about a dozen lone woman murders unsolved. And I, I make it make a case for about 10 of them. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so your own father was involved in 10 other murders. Say again. So your dad was involved in 10 other murders. Yes, at least 10. And, and that started the rabbit holes. And um, basically, he came back and said, well, I would file on two of these murders, and I would win them in court. He says, the others, you're probably right. But he says, there's not quite enough evidence. So with that, uh, basically, I said, okay, well, I'll go ahead and publish the book. I'll write it up and publish it. So I came out in 2003 with a book. And, you know, all the shows did all the all the television interviews and all that and basically did a presentation to LAPD and uh I and Steve K this DA did uh showing them it was a dead bad, bad case on him and um basically uh that's where it went for a couple of years and then the proverbial stuff hit the fan and we discover that there was a secret file in the D locked away in the DA safe that got opened. And we discover he was the prime suspect all along. Wow. His name did it. They bugged his house for six weeks. They got confessions from him, tape recorded confessions from him. Uh, you know, he says, suppose I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. My secretary's dead. And he killed his secretary, and they, he was investigated for that years so. early. Anyway, there's just too much to go into on detail, but but basically, the tape recordings uh, and there were payoffs to the police. And you got to understand, LAPD back then was very corrupt. Uh, I mean, the East Coast, Chicago, New York, they were all really very corrupt back then. And um, yeah, it was like a real life LA Confidential, you know. It, more 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 than we know, you know. It's my sister. No, it's my daughter. It's my <laughs> anyway. Um, so basically, but he, picked, he when you found out, he already died. Oh yeah, I just I, none of this started until he he died. I was I, I had no clue. I was close to my father. I, you know, none of this. Once he died, and I came into, I started looking at it to show he had nothing to do with it. That's when the that's when everything started opening up. Well, let's touch on that a minute. I mean, that in itself had to be a shock. Here's a guy who's your father, 
you thought you knew him, you were close to him. Could you share some of that with our audience? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, Gianni, I've been through every possible emotion you can think of. Um, anger, hatred, depression. Uh, you know, initially I said that it wasn't possible. And so you got two things. You got the son who loves his father, right? And his, his father was very mysterious. A lot of this stuff I had no idea until I got into the investigation. So you got a loving son who's pursuing and wanting to know more about his mysterious father. He was never a warm fuzzy, but he was always large and in charge. And he had this beautiful speaking voice, kind of like Richard Burton. And he was a handsome. Women were, you know, madly in love with him. Every every woman he ever met fell in love with him. And he was a, he, a married five women, 11 children. You know, so he had all of this charisma and charm. And then there was the cop, the trained homicide investigator on the other side who was who was pursuing and trained at, at knowing what he's doing to follow a case. So you had this, I had this parallel uh, investigation going on that took me three years before I made my case. And I was sure I was going to clear him and I made the mistake of following the evidence. And it took me in 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Oh, that that hadn't I didn't realize you you thought he was innocent. Absolutely. Well, you were trying to disprove you're trying to disprove him. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I said there's no way. I mean, dad had his faults, and mostly it was sex. And I and I definitely knew that that, that on the uh, with Tamar, the sex and the incest occurred. Uh, there was no doubt in my mind. But you know, a horrific torture, kidnap, torture, murder, and it was. I've had 300 cases and I've never had a case that even came close to the extended torture and the things that were done to Elizabeth Short. So uh, I, I was sure that he was totally incapable of doing something like that. So for our what audience- I found out was he, he was a supreme sadist and misogynist, uh, a misanthrope, he hated society. He hate, you know, all of this was about revenge and anger. Uh, and he's the one that called it the Black Dahlia Avenger. He, he was taunting the press. He was sending in notes, you know, which I handwriting I recognized as my own father's. I mean, you know your parents' handwriting? Yeah. You know my parents' handwriting. And uh, that was one of the things that was a real shocker was when he, he sent in at least a dozen notes on the Dahlia case. And he has- hold your thought up. Well, let's go to the commercial break a minute. We'll be right back. Steve, this is an amazing and probably one of the messy stories we ever had on our show. Thank you. One second. We'll be right sure. back. Absolutely. Don't go nowhere. We know where you live. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just want to tell my fans out there, on April 13th and 14th, I'll be at the Doubletree Hilton in Fairview at a new convention that I'll be the, at the first one and so far six more to come called PaisanoCon. We finally got an Italian convention going. <laughs> it's for two days. There's going to be more oil and garlic over that convention center. You can't believe it. Make sure you show up. Remember, April 13th, 14th at the Doubletree Hilton in Fairview. Just go there, get the information, or go on PaisanCon.com. Okay, thank you. All right, we're back. Okay, we're back. So right. You want me to talk a little bit about Elizabeth Short, the victim? Wait, wait. Okay. I think Mike, Mike had a question for you. 
Oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. But I'm dying. Uh, just, just can we please announce? I listened to Root of Evil. Um, fantastic. I was just fascinated, and and I love when I'm looking at those or listening to those podcasts. I'm always stopping to Google, what, you know, the house or this or that. And what was your first clue? Me, that well, one second. Yeah, so so I am the night came out, which was a a series with uh, Pine and I forget the actress's name, uh, uh, but anyway, it was a four five or six part series, and it was supposedly uh, you know the, about the black tie stuff. Well, I didn't know anything about it until I saw the trailer. I did, I had nothing to do with it. I um, it was made uh, by. Uh, I'm blanking. Who's the superwoman that made hey, the super superwoman the the director producer? Anyway, she was. I'm blanking on her name. But anyway, uh, it was. It came out and it was 95% fiction. Wow. So they approached me and they said, you know, we're doing this root of evil sh show, ten part series. And we need you. To, 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 we want to do the truth. And I said, I don't want any part of it. I, you know, it's all missed. You know, I said, no, no, we'll cut, we're going to do the real deal. Finally, convinced the producer convinced me uh, to to take part in it, which I did, and I'm really glad. I hope it did, money it, too, though. It set it set the record straight uh, for the most part, and it was 95 percent true. So, Root of Evil came out, and it was it was very well done, and um, you know, but there are a lot of there are a lot of myths about the Black Dahlia. There's a reason why it's LA's most notorious case you know and there are three myths there's a one was the missing week the, the legend goes that she she was dropped off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown LA and the the uh, they saw her leave out the back the front door into the fog and she was gone for uh, nine days until her body appeared on a vacant lot severed in half she was surgically bisected. Uh, that's the first myth uh, that I, 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 dis I dispose of, which there was no missing week. I came up with 14 witnesses that saw her every day of that week published in the papers. Hey, correct, um, me if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong. There was also another myth that she came out, like a lot of beautiful women back then, came out to LA, Los Angeles to become an actress. Was she an actress or no? No. Okay. She she was never involved in that. That's, that's a big myth, too, that she was never involved in pictures. What it was, was back then, you know, some of the guys hitting on her said, hey, you're beautiful. You ought to be in pictures, you right. know, but it wasn't her. She was basically a rather naive 24-year-old young lady during the war that wanted to marry and fall in love with Lieutenant Wright and live happily ever after. And she had some, some psychological problems of her own. She tended to lie a bit and stuff. But basically, she was a, you know, a Medford girl that just wanted to fall in love and, and live happily ever after. My hometown, that's where I grew up. Yeah, great. Where, where'd you grow up? In the same town as the Black Dahlia, Medford, Medford. Massachusetts. But which? which? Medford, Massachusetts. Oh, Medford, Massachusetts, okay. There's actually a big pla a big stone right where her house used to be for the Black Dahlia down there. Pretty cool. Yeah, so the second myth was that, that uh, it was a standalone murder, none before and none after. I present a dozen cases that were related. It was a serial crime. There's no about, doubt about that. And the third myth is the case was never solved. And that's the biggie, because what I discovered was that there were high-ranking LAPD and, and uh, DA's officers that, that 
solved it. They identified George Hodel and they locked it away and hid it. And say, why would they do that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, he was what they called a high jingo back then. Jenny, have you ever heard that term, high jingo? It, it's it's basically untouchable. Oh, a, a guy that's got so much stuff on so many people, and he, he, oh. he's untouchable. And yeah, George was a high jingo. <laughs> oh, 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 George was okay. Yeah, he had he had performed abortions for. You know, which was illegal, and you went to prison for five years back then. He had performed abortions for the the police guys and their girlfriends that got in trouble. Okay, so home. he had stuff on other people. He did. He had a lot of stuff on a lot of people. And um, there was then we also learned once we get into the secret DA Hodel tapes that they, there were payoffs, payoffs to the DA's office during the trial and prosecution and stuff. And um, so. Basically, uh, that's kind of it. She she was, uh, there were a lot of myths about her, uh, most of which were not true. She was not a druggie. She didn't drink. She uh, was just a basically a simple girl from Medford, Mass., you know, and uh, um, a lot of books have painted her as a prostitute and giving sex in back alleys, all BS. You know? So how many how many books or and, and TV shows were you directly involved in about this this subject? A lot. <laughs> um, ba basically, you know, once once the book came out, it was became a New York Times bestseller. So, you know, uh, it was kind of headlines because it was so notorious here in L.A. And I did, you know, kind of all all the circuit, the TV stuff. All were the you stuff. the sole author? Yes, yeah, I was the sole author. You, yeah, have right. a new, you have the new book out now, Steve. I do. So so basically, I've written nine books, and they're all kind of like one ongoing homicide investigation. Uh -huh. In other words, adding more and more evidence to not only the Black Dahlia, but other crimes uh, all over. And um, what I discovered was, and well, I knew this as I was going into it, Dad didn't start in the 1940s and wake up one morning and say, I think I'll be a serial killer. He started as a teenager and never stopped. So wow. I published... The early years is crimes in the 20s. Uh, part two is the book two is the 30s. And then all of these in the 40s. And now I've just come out in November with um, Black Dahlia Adventure 4, which was my first uh, adventure into, let's call it, say, historical fiction. Everything is true. All the facts are true. But the care, what I do is I wanted to give a voice to the victims. You know, all of the all of the murdered victims never had a voice. They never had a chance to speak out. So what I did was I made a trial by the quick and the dead. And I, I put it in the Hall of Justice in downtown Los Angeles. And basically, um, I don't know if you can see this or not. Let's see. Can, can you see this? Oh, yeah. And basically, it, it's uh, I did an audio book and ebook and, and print book. And BDA Ford goes, it's a trial. We put George on trial for his crimes. And we bring back the witnesses from the other side. And we have a ghost judge and we have a ghost uh, prosecutor. And some living, I'm, I'm, I'm the investigator for the prosecutor, so I'm alive. I think, am I alive still? Tell me. Am I I'm still heard of much right? alive. <laughs> okay. And uh, we have, I bring in some living witnesses and a lot of and bringing all of the victims to testify about their crimes, what he did. 
So it was, for me, it was a, a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, I, I'm excited about it. I, I think it's, and I it pretty much include all of the evidence from the other books. So basically, it was actually, I wanted to give the victims a voice. And I couldn't figure out any way to do it other than this. And I think it works pretty good. I'm, I'm real happy with it. And, and when did it come out? November. November. So, oh, just how's it doing in sales, though? Do Say again. How is it doing in sales? Well, I, I self-published this uh, because oh. it's, it's a long book, and if you if you go to a one of the big publishers, what happens is they cut it down to it's oh, yeah, eighty pages, and they would cut that down to two hundred and fifty to three hundred. You yeah. know, they see the dollar signs, so that's one of the reasons I did it. I didn't do this to make money. I did this to get the truth out there. And I'm not going to be around forever. So I wanted to document as much as I could uh, and speak for the victims. Steve, if where I can ask you, I'm, go ahead, Jeannie. I just wondered where they could get those books, where our audience can- Amazon. Uh, Amazon. Yeah, Amazon. Uh, they, and, it's, and the audio book is amazing. Um, it was It's narrated by a guy named Malcolm Hillgartner. And he is the best. He's done about four or five of my books. And it's it's not a narration, it's a performance. Wow. And he, he really brings it alive. So I would highly recommend the audio book. Print book's great too, because it's got all the photos, which you're not going to get on the audio. Wow. So buy the audio and and or buy the audio and listen to it with the print book. <laughs> and Actually, real quick, I want to circle back on how much time we have left. Yeah. Can you take our audience back? to January 15, 1947, and real quick, explain what you think happened between your dad and her, how it came about, real quick. Well, we know hours before she was murdered, a policewoman from uh, downtown, working a footbeat downtown LA, uh, sees her come out with, with a two men and a woman. And she had had prior contact with her earlier in that day, a few hours before, where she came running out and said, a man's threatened to kill me. And they they went back to got her purse and the man was gone. So this was the second second contact with her, and she sees her and she goes over and says, "Are you all right?" And she says, "Yeah, I'm going to meet my dad at the bus depot, which was just a few blocks away." So she's seen with these two men and a woman. That's the last she's seen. And from there, they go to the the Franklin house, she, you know, and uh, basically uh, she. It's extended torture for four hours, um, and it's it's beyond horrific. I've never had a crime scene. Uh, I've never had a crime that comes anywhere close to it. And, and I don't think I don't know if you want me to go into the details or not. But, but only a doctor could see. So he didn't cut the bone. There was no bones cut. The, the procedure is actually an operation called a hemicorporectomy, and they knew from the get go that it had to be a highly skilled surgeon. Because uh, you, it's the only way you can go through, I have a picture here of it, but it's the only way you can go through the body without sawing through bone. And it was, and there was no severing, uh, there was no, uh, they knew that it had to be a scalpel and that it was um, a professional job. So that limits your suspect pool right there. Right. The fact that it's a surgeon, a skilled surgeon. And no and, blood and, on the scene, right? Is that right? There was no blood on the scene as well. Right, all the blood had been drained in the bathtub, in the bathtub at our home, and and the two parts were transported on cement sacks, paper sacks, large cement sacks, 
And I was actually able to link the cement sacks to our home by receipts oh. I found in Lloyd, Frank Lloyd Wright Jr.'s um, file. He had a file on Hodel. And in that, um, three days before the murder, there's these cement sacks were purchased <laughs> for some repairs at the Franklin house. So, so what, was, what was your first clue that you thought, oh, no, this wasn't what I was expecting? Uh, well, I guess it was the handwriting, which was published on the front page. The note that said, I'm turning myself in on January 29th, had my fun at the police signed Black Dahlia Avenger. And that, that handwriting was undisguised, and it was hand printing, very unusual printing, that I recognize as my father's. So that was the first thing. But I said, no, there's got to be some other explanation. It can't be. So that was the first and uh, of many. How long, how long had you been dead when you started this investigation and realized it was him? Well, it was just a few days when, my ta when Tamar said he was the suspect of the Black Dahlia murder. That phone call was like two days after he died. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that started me on, on it, and I spent the next three years pursuing it. Yeah, With, hard to mourn your dad while you're finding all of this stuff, thinking, what what have I stumbled into? Well, it and probably gave him the energy to go try to prove him innocent. Exactly. Yeah, at first. Yeah. I, I mean, I really was. I'm confident that I would be able to establish his innocence. Well, so, maybe. Maybe. It's been a hell of a journey, and and it's been nine books, and and uh, I've just recently moved from Los Angeles, my hometown, up to uh, Birch Bay, Washington, which is kind of the northwest corner of the United States. I'm about six miles from the Canadian border, and I got Are myself a little fugitive? dog now. <laughs> Are you <laughs> a fugitive? Are you leaving us? Yeah. <laughs> well. You know, my two my two sons, one lives in Seattle, one lives in Bellingham, and they say, Dad, come on, it's time to stop. You're 82 <laughs> years old. <laughs> and I said, Okay, maybe you're right. <laughs> well, so, I, I get that. I'm I'm 81, and they keep telling me, why do you keep doing what I'm doing? Because we have fun with it. What else are we gonna do? Exactly. Well, you know, what you know, yeah, I, I uh, I'm I'm there may be one more book. <laughs> I'm trying not to uh do it, but uh I enjoy it up here. It's very, very different from L.A. And, oh, my God. Yeah, Steve, if you yeah. ever want to get rid of that Maltese Falcon behind you, I'm your guy. <laughs> Did I tell you that's one of the Warner? original? No. That's one, yeah. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. Well, and that's the other amazing connection. The Maltese Falcon. You know who designed that? Dad's best friend and, and a, an accomplice in some of his murders. A guy by the name of Fred Sexton who John had, who was friends with John and George back then. And Houston had him design that. And he made that, he was an artist, and he made that uh, uh, for uh, Maltese Falcon. I think they made about five or six of them. Gianni, did you, did you, both of you, Steve and Gianni, did you ever hear this story about John Houston back when he was coming up as a director? Clark Gable was a massive star, uh, big box office draw. So he's a Pot Gable was drunk one night and he got in a car accident and he killed somebody. Oh, so, yeah, so they cool. called, you know, they called Giesler at the studios, whatever they had, whoever they called, and they got John Houston to sit in as the driver. So we'll, you know, we'll, we'll give you some big, you know, big directing jobs. So he took the rap because he was like a young kid back then. So Clark Gable couldn't take the pinch. If you look that up, that's that's a true story. Really? I mean, I was aware of John's accident and killing somebody, okay. but I never heard, yeah, heard the other behind it. Yeah, Clark Gable. I'm sorry, Cary Grant. Cary Grant. No, I'm sorry, Clark Gable. I always get it mixed up. Clark Gable. Clark Gable. 
Really? Now you got me confused. Who did it? Sorry. Okay, Bob, who did it? Bob Gable. Yeah, because he was Gable. drunk one night and he killed somebody. And they had him take the rap for him because, you know, he was an up-and-coming director. And they said, listen, you the take studio, the, the studio will do anything. That oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh they were really dirty back then. Oh, I got, no. I'll, give you a little, I'll give you a little anecdote on my mother. So she's married to Houston for seven years, right? And he, he's filming. His mother was married to John Houston? Yeah, for seven years. Oh, and, my God. This is you insane. You missed slipping that in. Now, back up. She was married to who? John Houston. John Houston. She was his John's first wife. She was married. They were married seven years. And uh, yeah, they ran, remember, that. they ran off to Greenwich Village as a double date. Oh, you didn't, oh, you, well, you okay. didn't mention his last name. You said she ran off with John. Oh, oh yeah. John Houston. Yeah. So, wow. so anyway, here's the story. Uh, he's, he's filming Treasure of Sierra Madre. And there's that scene with a little boy who turns out to be Robert Blake, right? The little Mexican boy. Right. And they're filming that and the lottery tickets and stuff. And it, and John says, goes to Dorothy and he says, you know, this is, the dialogue sucks. You got three young boys that age, Dorothy. Will you write it? Well, mom was a screenwriter. And so she wrote that scene in the lottery in the bar. And uh, he says, that's it. That's perfect. And uh uh, she she never got credit for it, but she, she wrote yeah, that. So much thing. great great history of, I mean, so many things. Jeez. Yeah, there are. It's just you know, it, if you went to some director with this and said and laid it out to him, just kind of like in a three minute pitch, they'd say, "Get the f out of here!" You know, this guy's insane. You know, and uh, you have to have a whiteboard going to keep like, up like with Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump meets the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. So, how many um, half brothers and sisters did you uh, end up with? Because George eleven was exactly. eleven. Yeah, well, so their dad fathered eleven children, and and I had two full brothers, and actually I was a twin. But John, some call him Gio, Gianni, but John uh, didn't make it. He lived three weeks and, and died, and we were in incubators. We were like three pound babies. Can you believe that? Anyway, oh, wow. anyway, uh, so. Two full brothers, and the rest were half brothers and half sisters. Wow! Yeah, it's an incredible story. Thank uh, you so much for coming on, man. We, we have to have you on again. I'm sure we could yeah, talk about it. Goes it's back a pleasure. To, it goes back to the Zodiac Killer. It's there's so much stuff going on. Um, just Google Steve Hodell. Go to Amazon. Check out his books. It's a fascinating story. It gets deeper and deeper. You know, you just can't get you can't get enough of it. It's amazing. So you should be commended for your what you did, and um, so uh, thank you for bringing it on our show. Well, thanks a lot. Been a pleasure talking with the three of you. Oh, thank well, you so much. It's amazing that you had the courage to to out your dad after after you were going to prove him innocent, and then after you found all that to be able to go. All right, I'm going to just tell the truth instead of covering that up. Well, that's what I did for that's what I did for 25 years, and I wasn't going right. to change. <laughs> Well, it's fantastic. Thank I you love for sharing it. it. And we, we appreciate you coming on. And you're welcome to come on anytime you'd like. You Thanks a lot. Mike's number and please. I yeah. appreciate it. Don't forget, the, don't forget the Falcon. Don't forget what? The Falcon. <laughs> don't forget the Falcon behind. <laughs> okay. Pleasure All meeting right. you. Thank, Thank you. you so Hi, much. Steve. Thank you. Bye. All right. It was another great episode of Hollywood Godfather podcast. I want to thank Jeannie first, the lady. Mike, our new co-host, thank God you joined us. And uh, 
this is what's coming up, man. So you send your cards and letters, some requests for new shows. Obviously, we have an encyclopedia of cinema history now with us, The Hollywood Kid. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, guys, um, your wife, if you're watching this on our YouTube channel, subscribe, hit the thumbs up button. That's what we need. We need audience involvement. Write your letters. Go to HollywoodGodfatherPodcast.com. Answer questions. Johnny, Johnny's an almanac of Hollywood history. I mean, it's amazing. So I, anything can get answered from Gianni or Jeannie or myself. And you. How about you? Are you myself. Yeah, I'm, gonna try my, I'm, trying to be, I'm trying to be modest, you know, but screw that. There's no, no money in modesty. You know, hello. Just uh spread the word out there on social media, share our stuff, tell your family, tell your friends, tell all your enemies. We're here every Wednesday. That's exactly. That's right. And another thing is you can share the episodes, just look for the button. You can share whether it be podcast or on YouTube. So share it amongst your friends, and and that was a fascinating story. And if you've ever uh, I you learn a little more every time, and I'll tell you the you first like time I ever heard I him. I really like that one, Jeannie. I know you're. Oh, true. thank you. You know it's right up my alley. I loved it. What a you're... great time! Thank you. All right. Well, thank you all, and we're going to say good night. God bless it. Stay safe. Good night. Mwah. Thank you. I say that. And that was that. No regrets, no complaints. Lived a life with no restraints. The little kid they all counted out. Proved them all wrong, that's without a doubt. Laying there with my left side numb. Five year bout with polio, but yes, I won. From standing all corners like, how many pens you want to living in a bakery? Then opening my own restaurant. Of course, I had some help along the way. Friends like Frank Costello that I miss each and every day. Things from many years ago still resonate.